Hello, and welcome back to the Baked and Awake Show. This is your host, Steve, and this is episode 20 of the podcast. We're going to switch it up just a little bit tonight on you, everybody. For those few of you who might be taking note and we're looking forward to the Mars Hill episode, it is coming and very soon we'll we'll be coming out with that episode in just a few days. I've just got a little bit more work I want to put in on it uh, before I put that one out. And it's possibly going to be a two-parter, depending on uh, where we're able to take it. Um, but yeah, yeah. So excited about it. It's on the way. It's in the pipe. And, and we'll see it here very soon. Uh, tonight, what I thought we would do is uh, try out a, a show format that I've wanted to experiment with for a little while now. And uh, what I want to do is read a few passages, in this case, short stories from a book that I found in my thrifting uh, adventures. Okay, so, you know, just a kind of a random find. found this recently. It's a book by an author named William B. Brewer, and it is called Top Secret Tales of World War II. Um, Brewer, according to his book jacket here, is a military historian and an author of more than 25 books, 10 of which have been the main selections of the Military Book Club. They include undercover tales of World War II, unexplained mysteries of World War II, the great raid on Kabanatuan, feuding allies, and MacArthur's undercover war, all published by Wiley Books. So, um, yeah, and uh, I've, you know, taken a peek at it and uh, sort of perused a lot of the titles of the stories here. They're all really brief uh, stories, so I hope to read, you know, three or four of them here for you this evening. And, uh, yeah, I'm not sure exactly how long that'll take. There, as I say, you know, some of them are two pages, some of them are five pages. So I sort of earmarked one from each of the uh, first four sections of the book. And uh, if we, if I look up and realize I've got plenty of time and wind left in my wind bag, then we'll see if we want to keep going. Uh, and yeah, uh, you know, I, I have an interest in history in general. I do have an interest in um, World War One and World War II uh, to a, a certain extent, uh, you know, like many history, uh, history buffs uh, might, uh, because it's a very momentous time period in history uh, that still is shaping and affecting you know, the world today, uh, arguably. So, uh, yeah, that would be, you know, probably the two, uh, things that would have put this on my radar in the first place as a book to pick up at all. And, you know, might be one that would be easy to find on probably Amazon for almost nothing. This book came back, came out back in around the year 2000, uh, according to the inside cover. Yeah. Yep, 2000. Um, yeah, so I'm going to spark this pre-roll from Dipped. I'm excited about this little infused pre-roll. trying to remember. Didn't look that closely. Do I have my... Oh, I do. Yeah, so this one is Elmer's Glue. Yeah, that's what I, I knew I was happy about this one. I was excited about this one. So, yeah, this one's from Dipped, and it's Elmer's Glue, and it's like all these Dipped pre-rolls, I think, have distillate and keef in them, too. So it's, you know, it's going to be pretty stony for sure. Um, Love Xander's, too. Great local shop down by uh, not far from our garden down in Tacoma in the Nally Valley, I-502. Uh, producer processor corridor down there. So, Xanders, thank you guys. We'll see you soon, I'm sure. Uh, all right, so let's jump in here. I see a little, um, a little quote from Winston Churchill at the beginning of the book. We'll read that really quick for you. He says, In the high ranges of secret work in World War II, the actual facts in many cases were in every respect equal to the most fantastic inventions of romance and melodrama. 
I'll probably butcher a whole lot of names, places, dates. There's people with Roman numerals in their names here, so I'm going to do my best for you. Introduction. Oh, by the way, we've got some Brahms on in the background. But if you know classical music, you know that's Brahms. The Hall of Mirrors in the magnificent Palace of Versailles, a mammoth edifice built by Louis the Fourteenth in sixteen sixty one, was bustling with formally garbed delegates from many countries on the beautiful day of June twenty eighth, nineteen nineteen. They had gathered outside Paris for the signing of the peace treaty that concluded what euphoric allied politicians labeled the war to end all wars. It was one of German history's blackest hours. For the victors, mainly Great Britain, France, and the United States, had inflicted harsh terms on the vanquished, including forcing Germany to acknowledge responsibility for starting the four years of bloodshed and carnage known then as the Great War. With hostile neighbors on all sides, Germany had been virtually disarmed by the Treaty of Versailles. Her former six-million-man force had to be slashed to a Reichswehr army of only a 100,000 civilian volunteers. And this caretaker force was prohibited from having airplanes or tanks. Almost before the ink had dried on the peace treaty, a cagey, monocled old Prussian, General Hans von Siecht, S-E-E-C-K-T, set in motion a series of clandestine events to lead to the rebirth of the German military and industrial might. As commander of the Reichswehr, Siecht, known as the Sphinx because of his enigmatic personality, began conspiring to use the authorized 100,000-man force as a cadre for future rapid expansion. Only the best-educated officers and sergeants who had proven themselves to be dynamic leaders and courageous in battle were allowed to remain in service. General von Siecht and his co-conspirators in the Reichswehr had to proceed with extreme caution and utilize ingenious deceptions to mask what was really taking place. Many British, French, excuse me, and American military officers were stationed throughout Germany to make certain that the terms of the Treaty of Versailles were enforced. Once Siecht had selected the members of his private club, he made certain that their living conditions were vastly improved, that they had food items not available to civilians, and that their pay was hiked. The general then established a strict routine of sports and other recreational activities that developed strong, healthy soldiers. Siegt next created a series of military schools whose civilian instructors, in reality high-ranking officers from the Great War, taught sergeants and lieutenants the techniques of commanding entire divisions in preparation for some future war. Among those eager students was a young Erwin Rommel, platoon leader in the war who was regarded by a superior as, quote, the perfect fighting animal, cold, cunning, ruthless, untiring, and incredibly brave. In 1921, the old Prussian, without informing the German government, negotiated a clandestine mutual military assistance pact with a highly unlikely ally, the Soviet Union against whom Germany had fought bitterly during the Great War.
the alliance had been instigated by Nikolai Lenin, the founder of the Soviet Union. Back in March 1917, news of the downfall of Tsar Nicholas II had reached Lenin in exile in Switzerland, where he had been trying to foment a revolution. In his impatience to return home, he accepted for himself and his friends the offer by the German Kaiser Wilhelm of a private railroad car to travel to Russia across Germany. Kaiser Bill, as he was called by the Allies, was confident that Lenin would aid his cause by taking Russia out of the war against Germany. But Lenin's own aim was to make not only Russia, but the entire world, Germany included, communist countries. Arriving in Petrograd, as St. Petersburg was then called, in April, I think it's, it might, it might be Petrograd again nowadays, uh, uh, in April, Lenin called on the Russian masses to join him in overthrowing the moderate government and replacing it with a communist one. <clears throat> Most of the peasants joined his Bolsheviks. Bolsheviks. And in 19, October of 1917, the government was ousted. It's interesting. I think I like to track a word or two ahead with my eyeballs here, obviously, when I'm reading out loud. A little different than reading my own words. Lenin became absolute dictator. As Kaiser Bill had hoped, he took the huge but ineptly led Russian army out of the war. Now, three years later, with both the Soviet and German economies in dire straits and inflation galloping out of control, Nikolai Lenin had instructed the Soviet ambassador to Germany, Nikolai Krestinsky, to make a discreet approach to General von Siecht. The result was the secret alliance between the two nations. If it was not a shotgun marriage, it was certainly one of necessity. The Red Army lacked both professional leadership skills and military schools for that training. Germany had no airplanes, tanks, or heavy guns. Or an air force or a navy. So yeah, you could say they needed each other a little bit. Under the terms of the pact, German military advisors would secretly assist the Soviet Union in modernizing its army. In return, the Reichswehr would receive periodic clandestine shipments of Soviet-built heavy weapons. At the same time, the cream of the Reichswehr would be sent to the Soviet Union in civilian clothes to be trained on the airplanes and tanks being developed there by German armaments experts. Each year, a third of the annual budget of the Reichswehr went into a curious cartel, the Gesellschaft zur Forderung Gewerblichen Unternehmen. Yeah. <laughs> the Industrial Enterprises Development Corporation. From its offices, one in Berlin and one in Moscow, it dealt directly with the Soviet government and had several subcontracting branches throughout the Soviet Union. The seemingly commercial corporation was a cover for the Reichswehr. Under the direction of the phony firm, aircraft shells, submarines, and poison gas were produced in the Soviet Union and shipped clandestinely to Germany. At his headquarters in Berlin in September 1921, General von Siecht set up Sondergruppe R, Special Group R, the cover name for an operation run by selected officers to coordinate the numerous secret German manufacturing and military assistance programs taking place in the Soviet Union. At the same time, the old Prussian dispatched one of his key officers, Colonel Oskar von Niedermeyer, 
to the Soviet Union to open the Zentral Moscow, Moscow Central. Niedermeyer immediately began dashing about the immense Soviet Union, wearing civilian clothes and carrying out his function of coordinating all secret German activities in that country. Colonel von Niedermeyer gave special attention to the three immense training bases in remote locales of the Soviet Union that were prepared for the Black Reichswehr, 20,000 strong, to conduct extensive and realistic field exercises. Pictured above that paragraph on this page is a vehicle that is a early, you know, uh, Model T era, Model A era, you know, kind of in American vernacular truck that has a shell hanging around it, and it is in a particular shape that is described very well by the caption here, which says, Men of the 100,000-member Reichswehr, trained with dummy tanks constructed of canvas around an ordinary automobile. That photo's from, I think, the German National Archives or the American National Archives. It says National Archives, probably American, U.S. National Archives. We go on. These soldiers were the best and the brightest, destined for eventual high command in some German army of the future. Before leaving for the Soviet Union, each of these soldiers' names was, quote, erased from the rolls. Theoretically, none of them now existed. Sent from Germany to the training camps in the Soviet Union under the most stringent secrecy, the men of the Black Reichswehr learned the art of war side-by-side side with young Soviet officers also selected for future high command from high-ranking German officers. Hermetically sealed zinc containers were used to bring back the remains of German soldiers killed in the rigorous training exercises in which live ammunition was sometimes used. <laughs> Some pretty colorful language for uh, I mean, some kind of metal casket, <laughs> hermetically sealed zinc container. Um, I don't know, maybe I'm underestimating it. Another area in which Germany rearmed was her air force. Although the 1919 Treaty of Versailles had directed that Germany destroy all of its combat aircraft and prohibited building more of them, the document made no mention of the use of gliders. So almost as soon as the treaty was signed, scores of active glider-flying clubs sprang up throughout Germany. Glider-flying developed into almost a craze in Germany during the first few years after the Great War. Although the young pilots looked upon their sport as an enjoyable pastime, many others envisioned the clubs as excellent training grounds for power airplane pilots when the day came that Germany again had an air force. One of the latter was Hermann Goering, who was working in an odd job as a salesman. Goering had been a highly decorated fighter ace with 22 kills, and he had succeeded Manfred von Richthofen, the famed Red Baron, as a squadron leader after he was shot down. Now as a civilian, in an intolerable post-war Germany, he was bitter about the Treaty of Versailles, and he vowed revenge. Early in 1922, Captain Edward V. Rickenbacker, America's top fighter ace in the Great War, and now an executive with an aviation corporation, was in Berlin on business. Four former German pilots who had engaged in duels with Rickenbacker's squadron over France, played host to him. One of the four was Hermann Goering. During the conversation at dinner, Goering told the American, quote, Our whole future is in the air, and it is by air power that we are going to recapture the German Empire. Rickenbacker masked his shock. 
only four years after the greatest butchery in history, to that time had endured. Here was a famous German advocating rebuilding the nation's armed might and going to war once more. Goering explained precisely how Germany would circumvent the restrictions in the Treaty of Versailles. First, we will teach gliding as a sport to all our young men, he said. Then, we will build up commercial aviation. Finally, we will create the skeletons of a military air force. When the time comes, we will put all three together, and the German Empire will be reborn. A year later, in 1923, the Allied Control Commission that had been monitoring all German activities since Versailles relaxed some constraints in the treaty to allow the nation to expand its industry, including permission to build a limited number of civilian airplanes. German aircraft manufacturers, delighted to be back in business after being shut down for nearly five years, took a liberal view of limited number and began producing hundreds of aircraft of all sizes. Then, in 1926, General von Siecht took another gigantic step in his master plan to secretly rearm Germany by creating an illegal Black Luftwaffe, a special aviation branch, the Fliegen Fliegerzentral, yeah, Fliegerzentral, Flying Center, was formed with a few squadrons of aircraft converted from civilian use. Modern aviation equipment and designs were sorely lacking, however, because German industry, hampered by the Treaty of Versailles restrictions, could not provide sophisticated technology. So, the Flieger Zentral, under bullnecked Major Hugo Sperl, a fighter ace in the Great War, sent scouts to several foreign countries, that was scouts in quotes, to several foreign countries to purchase aviation items sip of water there. He sent scouts to several foreign countries to purchase aviation items that were available on the open market. Efforts focused chiefly on the United States, whose industrial and technological capabilities were booming. Sperl learned from his scouts that most of the wanted devices, such as aircraft designs, automatic bomb sites, retractable landing gear, for example, were classified as military secrets by the War Department in Washington and not for sale at any price. <clears throat> Undaunted, Spurl and other plotters of the Fliegerzentral decided that what they could not buy, they would steal. The task of pilfering U.S. military secrets was handled, handed to the Abwehr, Germany's secret service, whose operations had apparently been overlooked by Versailles. <laughs> That's amazing. Diminutive, diminutive Fritz Gemp, the Abwehr chief, sent Germany's first post-war spy, 34-year-old Wilhelm Lonkowski, to the United States in 1927. His German passport identified him as William Schneider, a piano tuner. <clears throat> That's great, a piano tuner. Before sailing from Bremerhaven, Germany, Lonkowski had been furnished with a shopping list compiled by Major Spurl. Items had been culled from American aviation magazines and trade journals. The scope of Lonkowski's mission would have staggered spies of a less robust spirit. 
As a loan agent, he was expected to steal military secrets from such major corporations as Curtis Aircraft, Westinghouse Electric, Seversky Aircraft, Fairchild Aviation, and Douglas Aircraft, as well as from the U.S. Army's Mitchell and Roosevelt Airfields outside New York City. Longkowski soon found that the United States was a spy's paradise. No single federal agency was charged with counter-subversive operations, and the United States was the only major nation in the world that had no secret service to ferret out the intentions of hostile powers. Consequently, unmolested and without fear of detection and arrest, Wilhelm Longkowski rapidly recruited a network of domestic spies and began reaping a harvest of America's military secrets. Meanwhile, back in Germany, the Spinks, General Hans von Siecht, was continuing to use his guile to expand the Reichswehr's clout. Devising a deliberately misleading name, he created the Truppenamt, consisting of 60 of his most capable officers. The group's function was to form a new general staff, which had been outlawed by the Treaty of Versailles. Sieked also used evasive means to make sure that Germany would have a large pool of highly trained reserve officers. He achieved that goal by rotating men through the Reichswehr, thereby keeping its strength at 100,000 at any given time. In the early 1930s, when a new leader, Adolf Hitler, told the world that Germany was no longer bound by the Treaty of Versailles and began rapidly to overtly expand its armed forces, it would have a large, motivated, and skilled officer corps, the best in the world. Meanwhile, halfway around the world, from Germany in the late 1920s and early 1930s, Japan was gripped by a secret movement whose goal was a totalitarian state under absolute military control. Numerous covert groups, of which the Black Dragon was the most notorious, advanced the cause through machinations, murder, and mayhem. In 1927, Japanese military leaders secretly drew up the Tanaka Memorial, a blueprint for armed conquest of the Far East and driving the United States and Great Britain out of the Pacific. The dream of the warlords was called Hako Ichiyu, the eight corners of the world under one roof. Japan had spent many years preparing for the inevitable war in the Pacific. From boyhood, young men were taught how to engage in armed combat. Schools were operated much like military units. Some of the teachers were army officers who lectured the impressionable boys that it was their duty to die if necessary to help Japan fulfill its divine destiny of conquest. From 1931 on, each graduating class at the Japanese Naval Academy was confronted with the final examination question. Quote, How would you carry out a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor? I don't know about this. I have never, ever heard this in my life before. That's great. All right, well, let's try to run that one down. <clears throat> on September 30th, 1931... Japanese soldiers planted explosives on the tracks of the Japanese-owned railroad in Manchuria, a large province in northeastern China separated from Korea by the Yalu River. The plot to provoke a war with China failed when an express train raced over the dynamite charge without being blown up. <clears throat> then the Japanese saboteurs killed several nearby Chinese soldiers. And Tokyo fabricated a story that the Chinese had tried to derail the Japanese train. 
Based on that fraud, General Senjuro Hayashi, a Hako Ichiu disciple, rushed his army in Korea across the Yalu into Manchuria and seized control of the province. Militarists continued to consolidate their power in Japan by the expedient of getting rid of inconvenient persons. In 1932, a clique of Navy officers murdered 75-year-old moderate Prime Minister Tuyoshi Inukai. When the Minister of Finance refused to increase funds for the military, he was killed by Army officers. In an effort to incite the militarily weak United States into a war, a plot ultimately unsuccessful was hatched to murder Hollywood superstar Charlie Chaplin, then visiting Tokyo, and U.S. Ambassador Joseph C. Grew, a Harvard grad who devoted most of his time toward keeping Japan and the United States from armed conflict. All the while, the Japanese warlords had been building one of the mightiest war juggernauts that history had ever known. All right. So that was our intro. Let's jump right into one of these first top secret tales of World War II. This one's called Sinister Plots in the New Germany. A clear blue sky hovered over Berlin on the afternoon of June 29, 1934, when the chief of the German general staff, General Ludwig Beck, was escorted into the cavernous office of Adolf Hitler, a World War I corporal. Hitler had seized absolute control of the government after being appointed chancellor 17 months earlier by the aging and senile President Paul von Hindenburg. The 54-year-old Beck was highly regarded at home and abroad as the most efficient and humane German soldier of his generation. He had sought the appointment because of mounting evidence that the new German leader was planning on renaming the nation of 80 million persons, rearming the nation of 80 million persons to launch a war of conquest. In measured terms, Beck told Hitler that he did not intend to build an army to conquer other countries. His purpose was to create an efficient army to defend Germany. Hitler, noted for his quick temper, replied testily, General Beck, it is impossible to build up an army and give it a sense of worth if the object of its existence is not the preparation for battle. Armies for the preparation of peace do not exist. They exist for triumphant execution in war. Before he departed... Beck told Hitler that another war would become a multi-front conflict that Germany could not survive. Only minutes after returning to the imposing building of the Benderlestrasse that housed the headquarters of the general staff, Beck received a telephone call from Admiral Wilhelm Canaris, a cagey and highly productive spy in World War I, whom Hitler had appointed chief of the Abwehr, the German Secret Service. Six months earlier, on Canaris's 47th birthday. A slight, prematurely white-haired man who spoke with a lisp, Canaris, Canareth, that's terrible, can't do that, was well-educated and could speak the languages of Germany's potential enemies, England, France, and the Soviet Union. He too feared Hitler was embarking on a warpath that would eventually destroy Germany as a nation. Speaking in guarded tones, Canaris told Beck 
that the dictator was preparing to launch a purge to wipe out all sources of opposition to the Nazi regime. Among the officers on the hit list were General Kurt von Schlieber, Schlieker, Hitler's predecessor as chancellor, and Schlieker's close friend and assistant general, Kurt von Bredow, who had once held a high post in the Abwehr. Canaris told Beck that Hitler was convinced that Schlieger was conspiring with the French ambassador to get rid of the Nazi regime by restoring the Hosenhollerns, descendants of the traditional royal family, to the throne of Germany. Beck knew that Hitler's suspicions were well-founded, and he sent a trusted aide to warn Schlieger of the danger. Schlieker, however, seemed unconcerned. At high noon on June 30, less than 24 hours after Beck had clashed with Hitler, five men in civilian clothes barged into General Schlieker's villa. They went to the study, where Schlieker was working on some papers, pulled out pistols, and shot the former chancellor. Frau von Schlieker, who had been in another room, rushed to the study. She, too, was shot and killed. Two hours later, General von Bredow was at the Hotel Adlon in Berlin, drinking tea with a French diplomat, when a messenger from General Ludwig Beck brought him an envelope with a short note telling him that Schlieker had been murdered. Bredow's face flushed in anger. Turning to the Frenchman, he said with a snarl, I wonder why the pigs haven't killed me yet. Bredow told his companions that Schlieker was the only man who could have saved Germany. He was my leader. Now, there is nothing for me, he declared. Bredow took a taxi home, and just past five o'clock that afternoon, he answered a ring at his front door. Two men whipped out pistols and riddled the general with bullets, killing him almost instantly. Adolf Hitler had launched into one of the bloodiest purges that European history had ever known. He realized that war was the last thing most of his generals wanted, and he was convinced that they were conspiring to restore the Hosenhollerns. Hitler had set into motion a series of sinister plots to not only eradicate suspected foes bodily, but also to, to besmirch their honor. That approach began promptly when the war minister, General Werner von Blomberg, ordered that Schlieker and Bredow were to be regarded as traitors and that no general or admiral was to attend their funerals. Despite the risk to their careers or even their lives, General Ludwig Beck and Admiral Wilhelm Canaris ignored the strict order and dressed in full uniform and carrying Schlieker's medals on silk cushions, they walked behind the cortege to the cemetery. At the gates, they were halted by a group of black-uniformed Schlutzstaffel, SS, an elite corps that served as Hitler's bodyguard and was fanatically loyal to him. On August 2nd, 1934, a month after Schlieker and Bredow were branded as traitors and buried, the long senile, 87-year-old President Paul Ludwig von Hindenburg died at his estate in East Prussia. Earlier, Hitler had obtained a political testament from the old warrior that named Hitler to succeed him as president. Now Hitler moved swiftly. He had no interest in merely being president of a great nation. Only minutes after Hindenburg died, Hitler proclaimed himself Führer, Supreme Leader, and launched a strategy to induce his admirals and generals to swear allegiance to him. 
no doubt acting on the Führer's orders. War Minister von Blomberg directed all of Germany's generals, some 300 of them, to assemble at 3 o'clock that same afternoon at the foot of the Siegesel, the towering column of victory in Berlin. Unknown to the high brass, Hitler was preparing to inflict a coup d'etat that would give him total control of Germany and the armed forces. The generals had been told that they were to participate in ceremonies to honor the dead President Hindenburg. Cannons were fired. A band played mournful tunes. There were two minutes of silence. Then General von Blomberg stepped forward to take the Fahrenheit, the blood oath of the Teutonic Knights. The army commander, General Werner von Frisch, Fritsch, and General Ludwig Beck followed. Each held the flag of Germany in one hand and the Bible in the other, while reciting. I swear by God this holy oath, that I will render to Adolf Hitler, Führer of the German nation and people, Supreme Commander of the Armed Forces, unconditional obedience, and I am ready as a brave soldier to risk my life at any time for this oath. All over Germany, at the same time, the rank and file of the armed forces recited the same blood oath. Walking with General Fritsch back to his headquarters, Beck stopped suddenly and said solemnly, This is a fateful hour. That oath means physical and moral suicide. Further along the way, Beck halted again. Both generals realized that they had been tricked into taking an oath, not to Germany or the Constitution, but to Adolf Hitler. Quote, he took us unawares, Beck said mournfully. I did not realize that we were swearing a completely new form of oath. Führer Hitler, in the months ahead, continued to rearm Germany. But to carry out his plans for widespread conquest, he would have to rid himself of all those on the general staff who might oppose him and replace them with those who would do his every bidding without argument or hesitation. Strangely, perhaps, was one of the first targets was Werner von Blomberg, the war minister, who had been the first general to be elevated to field, mar field marshal by the Führer. Blomberg was known in the officer corps as the Rubber Lion, one willing to bend whichever way the Führer desired. In December 1937, <clears throat> Blomberg was 59 years old and a widower and asked Hitler's permission to marry a 26-year-old typist. The Führer gave his blessing and was a witness at the wedding ceremony. Blomberg and his new young wife departed for a honeymoon on the romantic Isle of Capri. A longtime crony of Hitler, General Hermann Göring, immediately began to hatch a scheme to oust the war minister. Known behind his back as Fat Hermann, Göring deeply coveted Blomberg's job. Göring turned over the exacting task of discrediting Blomberg to an expert in the field, tall, hawk-nosed Reinhard Heydrich, the young chief of the Schieker Heiden, uh, oh yeah, <laughs> Schieker Heidenst. It's the best I'm going to be able to do on that one right now. They call it the SD, the security branch of the SS. Brilliant and with the instincts of a barracuda, the highly autonomous, the highly ambitious Heydrich and his underlings began poking into Blomberg's private life 
and found that he was quite fond of women. That was no crime in the Third Reich, but it could be a valuable black man weapon at some future date. Blomberg, Heydrich's agents discovered, occasionally donned civilian clothes and spent evenings in some of Berlin's more exotic night spots. At the same time, SD men began sifting through old reports of the Criminelle Police, civil police, and hit the jackpot. Blomberg's beautiful new wife, Irma Grun, had had convictions for prostitution. Her mother was also well known to Berlin police as the proprietress of a massage parlor that was patronized by well-heeled men, presumably in urgent need of rubdowns. Goering was ecstatic. He rushed to see the Fuhrer and showed him the police docket. Hitler professed to be deeply distressed and immediately ordered the war minister to return to Berlin from honeymoon. Blomberg was promptly sacked and went into exile with his wife. He ignored suggestions from German generals he had known for many years to take a Luger and blow his brains out. Good job, Blomberg. Fuck that shit. Now Hitler pondered the question about who would succeed Blomberg as head of Germany's rapidly expanding military organization. The Führer was leaning towards appointing General Werner von Fritsch, whom Hindenburg had appointed commander of the army in May 1935. Aghast that he himself had not been chosen, Goering set about to dig up dirt on General von Fritsch. Again, Reinhard Herdicht's sleuths scanned old police vice files and came up with the name of a German officer who had been blackmailed by an ex-convict and male prostitute named Otto Schmidt. No doubt frightened to be gilled by agents, but grilled by agents of a high government official, Schmidt, known as Bavarian Joe, admitted that he had committed a homosexual act with a man he identified as General von Fritsch at the Wannsee Railroad Station. Hoping to gain more proof that Fritsch was a practicing homosexual, Herdick's agents fanned out through Germany to interview officers in Fritsch's command. None would claim any knowledge of their boss's alleged homosexuality. Despite a total lack of confirmation of the charges, trial papers were brought up against Fritsch. Learning of the trumped-up charges, Fritsch was apoplectic, and he demanded an immediate interview with the Führer. Unknown to the general, Hermann Göring had arranged for Bavarian Joe to be present. In the library of the Reichskanzlei, Chancellery, Bavarian Joe repeated his story in front of a frowning Hitler. Schmidt had been well coached. The notorious ex-convict claimed that a, quote, elderly gentleman wearing a monocle, a short coat with a fur collar, and carrying a silver-headed cane entered the railroad station. In the lavatory, Bavarian Joe picked up the military officer and went with him to a nearby dark lane, he claimed. Fritsch protested that he had not been in Wannsee Railroad Station for many years and that he had never owned a silver-headed cane. A soft-spoken man innocent of political throat-cutting, Fritsch played right into Goering's hands by not reacting violently to Bavarian Joe's story, the only, evident, only the evidence against him. Consequently, Hitler immediately sacked the high-ranking general. When it was later discovered that Bavarian Joe's true client had been an obscure cavalry officer with a similar last name, Achim von Fritsch, the Führer, refused to restore the disgraced general to his former rank. Meanwhile, Hitler vastly reorganized the armed forces to make certain that when he was ready to go to war, 
The general staff would have to comply to orders without argument. The Führer created the Oberkommando der Wehrmacht, OKW, the Supreme Command of the Armed Forces. All unit staffs would be subordinate to the OKW. Hitler took the title of Supreme Commander. His two top aides were both Führer True, loyally true to him. They were General Wilhelm Keitel, <clears throat> who would be Hitler's chief of staff, and General Alfred, Alfred Jodl, who was designated to be Hitler's chief of operations. On February 4, 1938, Radio Berlin, which, like every institution in Germany, was controlled by the Führer, broadcast a long statement from the Oberkommando von Wehrmacht. Field Marshal von Blomberg and General von Fritsch had retired for health reasons, it was stated. Then the names of 35 other illustrious generals, who may not have been considered Führer true by Hitler or Hermann Göring, were read by the announcer. They, too, had gone into early retirement because of health reasons. <coughs> Lead poisoning. <laughs> Word of the failing health epidemic that had riddled the ranks of German, Germany's generals was flashed throughout the world by the newswire services. In the capitals of Europe, it was clear. Through a series of crafty schemes and ruthless maneuvers, the Fuhrer had gained total control of the 80 million people, and the now powerful army, navy, and Luftwaffe. All right, well. So, the first of the top secret tales of World War II. I think we'll, we're coming up on an hour here in a few minutes, so we're going to stop right there so we don't have to start one and not be able to finish it. Um, first thoughts, personally, are just uh, how much that time, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, I'm only in my early 40s. We have many World War II veterans, you know, still around today in this world. Um, and I mean, many, because millions of young men from all over the world were caught up in this conflict. Um, some of the some of the tones, some of the the sounds of the moves that are made there are just unbelievable. What had to occur two times in a row in a very short period of time, uh, historically speaking. Uh, over in Europe, over in Germany. Uh, there are many, many wonderful podcasts that are <clears throat> out there for those of you who are history-oriented. Uh, it's it's almost too easy to recommend uh, Hardcore History by Dan Carlin, but he does have a particularly good series on just these stories uh, I think he has one called Blueprint for Armageddon which is the uh, I think Blueprint for Armageddon is the story of the beginning of World War One. that's a fascinating story too also I should say uh, but another one that deals with this period of history quite heavily uh, I believe is the History on Fire podcast uh, as always, I, you know, I blather this stuff out and then I'll have to go back and put it in the show notes. But as always, I, I really hope that you folks make it back to the show notes. Uh, they're usually best viewed 
I'm finding, you know, in the different apps that I view the podcast in and check in on and let me know what you guys are seeing wherever you're catching the podcast. Uh, formatting stays intact in Apple iTunes in the native app and my hyperlinks and things are readable and selectable right from within the show notes that are published with the app there. If you get the uh, show on desktop and you're, you know, coming through from bakedandawake.com, then as soon as you click the you know, read more on any episode's description. That'll take you to the player on Libsyn um, where you'll also see the show notes with intact formatting. Um, I want to say Overcast, the formatting is working on that one. Um, I'm not sure how many people are using that Podcatcher app, but um, I'll need to peek at Podbean and see what's going on over there, etc. We're on a lot of platforms right now, and... I would love to make sure that the fidelity of our notes is, you know, uniform across all of them, but it's, alas, not always the case right now. So if you're seeing broken show notes or links that aren't working, anything like that for any reason, uh, please reach out on whatever, you know, channel you're on there or if you're not getting a response from me there because, you know, maybe I'm not being as attentive as I need to to my SoundCloud friends or something like that, uh, you know, hit me on Instagram, hit me through the website, uh, you can email me anytime at talk to us at baked and uh, I love hearing from, uh, friends and, uh, you know, folks with, uh, feedback and, uh, info for me about things that we've mentioned in the show. Um, yeah, I hope, you know, you didn't mind this episode too much. It was really, I mean, obviously we owe William B. Brewer, <clears throat> uh, any thanks that are due at all for, uh, any, informational value that came from that uh intro Uh, i think there's a lot here actually and i I heard a couple things that were really interesting including that claim that the japanese uh classes after 1931 yeah from 1931 on each graduating class at the japanese naval academy was confronted with the final examination question quote how would you carry out a surprise attack on pearl harbor so that'll be the fact that I've got a, I got a fact check there, at minimum, for tonight. But uh, thank you everybody for continuing to listen. Uh, don't I hope uh, think that this is too far out of form. Um, you know we are going to uh, you know mess with stuff like this on the show and just you know spend some time on straight history as well as conspiratorial history or alien history or interdimensional Bigfoot mythologies or any of that great stuff. Um, you know, some of which we certainly haven't touched on and may not, uh, right anytime soon, but, uh, uh, but who says we wouldn't, you know, absolutely nobody says we wouldn't. So, um, yeah, that's, that's probably about all you guys need for this week, right? I'm just coming back from being super sick for a couple days too, by the way, everybody take care of yourselves. I should have known I was getting sick because I had a disgusting ass cold sore the week before it. And that is a straight up, you know, you know, your immune system is going down the tubes. If something like that occurs, those of you other friends who, you know, suffer from those fuckers, they're just horrible. Uh, is about the only good medicine out there that gets those things to go down and go away fast and, just uh it's the worst you want to move to leper island when you have one of those uh and uh when i when i got that i should have known it should have been just dumping probiotics and you know vitamin d and vitamin b and you know all my multivitamins all my good stuff uh just kind of get you know get yourself pumped up get your iron you know (laughs) get your um well the vitamin d is one of the most important ones as you probably know so hopefully uh you're taking care of yourselves this holiday season. I'm hoping that my two days of illness are all I have for the holidays and that I'll have a, a you know, a good uh, Christmas holiday with the family here in another few days. So uh, I anticipate uh, putting out that episode, that next episode for you guys before Christmas, um, looking at the calendar here and just kind of eyeballing it. I, I think it'll definitely be before then. So I, uh, I think your odds are looking good for that. Uh, let me know what you thought about tonight. Catch me on the gram. Other than that, bait and awake. Smoke indica. Do shit anyway. <laughs>